Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, which is going live as of today. For my first interview, I'm talking with Julian Berengout, the author of The State of Wormwood and Honey, a novel set in 19th century Russia, a place close to my heart. Julian lives in Bangkok. He was kind enough to make time for us during his one week on the East Coast in November. His book explores the attempts of a young man named Nicholas with the assistance of his friend Sergei, to heal the injuries suffered during Nicholas's childhood by seeking retribution from those responsible for the abuse. Hi, Julian. Today we are interviewing Julian Berigout, uh, the author of The Estate of Wormwood and Honey, published by Russian Estate Books in 2012. And uh, Julian, welcome, and thank you for agreeing to talk to us today. Very much welcome. It's a privilege. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, that's kind of complicated, so I'll just give you the highlights. I was born in Poland, in Warsaw. Um, I've lived in a number of countries, but following my college in the United States, I stayed in the U.S. and have lived here ever since. Um, my education was in economics. Um, then I did my PhD. It was in international finance. And right after that, I came to Washington, D.C. and started to work for an international organization called the International Monetary Fund. And while there, I worked for many, many years, um, basically negotiating programs and negotiating debt with very many different countries um, in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, and following the breakup of the Soviet Union with many of the former republics of the Soviet Union, including Russia. Um, Then I retired and um, been doing little things since then, including a little bit of writing, um, although I did write without telling anybody I was doing that throughout my professional career. And then it came to me that one day that I was I could write a book. Um, and that eventual ambition got realized in the book that we are talking about, The State of Walmart and Honey. Of course, the process was nothing like what I had thought it would be, but in the end, it ended up with a book. So here I am. I just so happened that my wife's job um, call her to work in Bangkok. She's working with um, Burma and Laos, but the placement of a job is in Bangkok, so that's where I happen to be living at the moment. I came to the United States now just for a week. Um, I'll be doing a couple of readings, but I live in Bangkok now. And where are you reading? Um, I had a reading yesterday in Philadelphia, and I'll have one in... Um, on Saturday in Baltimore. Excellent. So perhaps some of our listeners will get a chance to hear you. That would be great. (laughs) 
So tell me, uh, you said that the process was not what you expected. What do you mean by that? Well, I I was like totally, totally uh, new at that and completely naive. And it seemed to me, <laughs> I mean, that respect is like almost child funny. I, it seemed to me that, you know, I would sit down and then I would write a book. I knew it would take a while. I knew it wouldn't be easy, but I thought that, well, once you sort of would make a plan and write a book, then like the world would knock at your door and say, well, we'll take it from here and we'll publish it and wonderful things will happen thereafter. I had the same experience, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And And the same naivete, I guess, because I thought it would be much easier. I had been reading all my life, and so I thought that I knew how to write a novel. Um, I knew how to write history, so I assumed that it would be quite easy to write a novel, but in fact it was not. So I'm wondering if you had some of the same experience, that it was not what you expected, or whether you meant just that after you had written it, it the Uh, process was not the same. There were difficulties that I had not that I had not um, ever envisaged that I would have in writing. Um, and there were difficulties afterwards. I think those afterwards, I think, would be common to many um, to many new writers. Um, but in writing, there were, there were scenes in the book um, that were described sort of painful experiences. Mm-hmm. And what I hadn't realized ahead of time was how difficult it would be to write them. Um, that was new to me. It's almost as if I had to anesthetize myself some way before I could write. I had them in my head. I knew what I wanted to say, but the physical act of describing painful experiences, this is child abuse um, scenes in the book, although, of course, the book is not so much about that, um, there were, there were, I, I hadn't expected it would be as difficult as it was. It is, I think people don't realize that when you are writing fiction in particular, I think you really live each scene so that even if you're describing something that is not specific to you, you experience the feelings that your character would be experiencing under those circumstances. And that's part of what makes it possible to write is that you have those physical sensations or emotional sensations that you can put on the page. I, I discovered that. I discovered that. Mm-hmm. But it's not what people expect. No, so. exactly. So let's talk a little bit about the book itself. Um, even the title is evocative, so it's explained at one point. I enjoyed the book very much, by the way. Let me say that up front. <laughs> um, so thank you for writing it and going through the emotional angst of getting it onto the page. Um, so explain for our listeners what the estate of wormwood and honey implies. Well, it's a book about things that are at the very basic level. Uh, we are talking about families um, and family bonds and how they sort of come into being and how they are broken and how they can perhaps be repaired. And at a very basic level, I think that this, the notion of the family is something that can be a source of the greatest comfort and also of great pain. Um, and this, 
I think is um, sort of the background to the title of the book. Is it, um, is it a phrase or is something, or, or is it something that you created? I I was I wish I were I was I was it was my original thought. I don't think it is. I have a big recollection of reading somewhere, and I cannot I couldn't tell you where. But it was, I'm fairly sure it was a Russian writer from 19th century. Um, might have been Pushkin. I, I, I have to guess it would have been him. And he made a comment. Um, it was in the context of marriage. Um, and the comment that he made, or maybe he was quoting, I I'm, I'm really sort of don't remember where I got this exactly. It was about the marriage and it said sort of like the first month after wedding is called the honeymoon, the first month. Mm -hmm. He said the month afterwards are the month of wormwood. <laughs> so I was sort of Not like, a happy marriage, I guess. <laughs> but, but it's like in this one relationship, you, I think the how I understood it is that you always combine um, things that give you happiness and also things that are sources of bitterness. Mm -hmm. Perhaps they always come together. No, it's a great title, and it does capture, I think, uh, your hero Nicholas's experience, both in his childhood and when he goes back. Um, maybe we could, for the, I don't want to give too much away because obviously we want people to read your book. But perhaps you could tell us just a little bit about the plot and the basic idea of the story and who Nicholas is and so on. Well, I, I don't want to... <laughs> it sounds absolutely presumptuous, crazy, but going back to another book about 19th century Russia, Tolstoy, War and Peace, there is this character there, and I had always liked him and identified with him, which is Pierre Bezukhov, mm -hmm. who starts in the novel as being a complete nobody. He's the sort of natural son of the great, the wealthy man. Um, actually, we know historically who the person was. Um, and, but, of course, his mother and his father were not married, and he's a nobody. His father sort of is taking care of him, and he's allowed to appear on the fringes of the of society, but nothing beyond that. And then in the very dramatic scenes, uh, Tolstoy describes how he became, how becomes at the end of his father's life. His father recognizes him as his official son, as his heir, and then he becomes this object of great veneration to everybody because he happens to be now officially um, an official, right, officially recognized son from uh, his father and also one of the wealthiest men in Russia. And something about the story has always bothered him. And what has bothered me about that is that how little we know, how little Tolstoy feels that we need to know about Pierre's mother. She, we sort of know that she's dead because otherwise she sort of would be a question why his father is sort of taking care of him. But beyond that, we know nothing. Um, and this has always been like a hole in this story that's bothered me and Perhaps this was part of why I sort of was thinking about the history where that part would be developed. It would in some way mimic the situation that was faced by somebody in Pierre Bezukhov's 
initial situation, but where the story of the mother would be better developed. And then I was reading and also another book by another great 19th century Russian writer, Alexander Herzen, about his own personal situation. And his was very similar to a situation of the natural son. He was the natural son of his father, also a very rich landowner. But his mother was around. Um, and this is where I sort of copy this, the, the situation of that my hero finds himself, Nicholas, because the situation was sort of the same, that their parents were married in a Lutheran, according to Lutheran religion, but that marriage was not recognized under Orthodox um, religion, and therefore, in the eyes of the Russian law, he was the pastor. Um, and it sort of affected his life in many ways, although less so, of course, than in the case of my fictional hero. So there was this, the, these two stories of one fictional in, in, in War and Peace, um, and then other, the actual story of, of Alexander Herzen that sort of caused me to think that perhaps there was a sort of a, a story worth developing. So, well, it's interesting that you mentioned Tolstoy because the thing I noticed immediately when I started your novel is that it seems to me to have a, a very Gagolian sensibility. And I wondered if that was deliberate because it's continued throughout the book, although it becomes less as we get more into the story. But in the beginning, particularly where we don't even know who Nicholas is. We just know that there's this young man who's come in on a carriage and it's not clear where he's coming from or what he wants. And he immediately runs into the town governor who is a very Gagolian character. He is quite perhaps unfair to call him corrupt given the system at the time. But it is clear that he... um, How should I put this? He's susceptible to bribery or he has a, a... sense that he should be paid uh, for his efforts and, yeah, and he's you know responsive to external authority and all of this kind of thing was that something that you set out to do i was doing that and i was sort of uh keeping i i tried to sort of get the atmosphere right and i was trying to get the the way people would talk to each other um Right, and of course, the only way you, you could do it is to read the sort of materials or books from the period, and Gogol was uh, obviously a good source. And 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 one, I sort of had the situation set up, and I of course realized that this is then very much sort of the beginning of that song. And then the sort of the situation of of noblemen who lived in these isolated estates in the provincial areas of Russia um, and how crazy they could be and nobody would be there to say this is really um, not acceptable. There's nobody like that. I mean, this is a situation very much, I think, that Gogol was also describing when when, when he, whether, you know, how, how eccentric or crazy or nuts the, these people could be without anybody there to sort of uh, notice that. So that was also another, I would say, a Gogolian uh, aspect of the novel. Mm-hmm. So Nicholas goes to Ryazan. Um, are you? Did you visit Ryazan? I mean, why did you pick I, there, that area? 
I traveled around Russia. I was never in Razan. I thought of Razan because this is my father uh, spent part of World War II there, and I heard stories from him about that town and somehow sort of work itself into into the novel. And I thought that in the beginning, I thought with the idea of sort of not naming the the town. Like, I don't name the particular year in which the action took place. Um, so, but then I thought it would be sort of too, too indeterminate, would sort of make the reader too much at sea about where to, in his or her mind, place the action. And, and I decided to locate it in a specific location, and I researched it, and this thing from my other stories about Ryazan came back and it fit it, so I put it there. It's an excellent location for this story. I mean, it's very yeah. much cent- the central Russian economy. It's also, a, of course, this is the east, eastern part of west of Russia, which is the eastern part of European part of Russia. It's something that in your writings you write about. I do, yes. Mine is even more east, but not too far from Ryazan, actually. Kasimov is pretty close. It's about 70 miles from Ryazan, and Ryazan, for those who don't know, is about 100 and 100, or 125 miles east of Moscow. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So Nicholas goes there, and it turns out he does have an agenda, shall we say. Um, can you tell the listeners a little bit about what he's looking for? Well, this is where it becomes, you see, what fascinated me with Tolstoy's War and Peace was that this is this one person, Pierre, who is a nobody socially. And then this little act about being officially recognized at being somebody, like changes the perception of everybody around him. And in my mind became sort of like, well, you know, let's have a person who is a nobody being treated in a certain way where everybody just doesn't think much of them and treat them accordingly. And wouldn't it be fun if sort of unknown, unknown to anybody, he became somebody, like through the same mechanism that, that happened in War and Peace. And the people who are sort of mistreated him or treating him very badly would now be forced to confront the fact that he is now their superior in some way. And that sort of presented, I think, some dramatic ideas that I felt would be worth exploring. Yes, and in fact, he does go back um, and he does start to seek um, revenge or at least apologies uh, from the people that he encounters. And so tell us a little bit about those. Well, it's a situation here where somebody who was mistreated, I think, who was, well, first dealt not a very good hand by simple accidents of history or fate. He, his mother um, died when he was a child. And because she died, it had legal consequences for him. And then he sort of ended up living in this legal limbo at his father's estate. And then the stepmother came, um, and sort of according to the stereotype, she wasn't a very nice stepmother. 
And he was forced to leave. And again, being not a very significant person in the hierarchy of the Russian society at the time, things have changed. And uh, in the novel, it sort of described a little bit better about how. And now he's coming back. And he's already somebody. Um, certainly, he has reestablished a position that under other circumstances he might have had from the very beginning. And he comes to confront people who pushed him out. And he comes to confront them. He comes to reestablish himself as the rightful owner of the estate. Um, in the process of doing that, he has to sort of go back um, as he seeks justice, he has to confront people about what was done to him. And this is the process which sort of makes him have to go over what actually happened to him. And this sort of mechanism that humans use to deal with this kind of things, which is some sort of suppression, some sort of forgetting it, trying to sort of keep memories in check. It doesn't, cannot, cannot, he cannot do that anymore because he's confronting the people who had been unjust to him, who made him suffer. And so this process of, of moving toward justice and moving to assuming his rightful ownership and rightful position of where he wants to be is tied to the process of some very painful memories and going over that and and then sort of punishing the people who did it to him. And that process also is very painful. So this is, I think, the tension in the book was, was, was about that in large measure. And this is also coming back to this idea of wormwood and honey. And in fact, he has second thoughts at a certain point about whether he should be doing this. He has second thoughts, the, the search for justice uh, is sort of not for people who are too sensitive in a way. And it's also what is just and how much can you punish people who have been unjust to you is a, is a something that's very much um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult issue. And I think people when, when you are sort of in the middle of it, when you're even when you're thinking about it, it's it's not an easy process. It's not something that you could you could sort of easily find out for yourself of what's the right thing to do if you are sort of a thinking sensitive person, which I've tried to make Nicholas. Yes, he does, he does come across that way definitely. He also has a friend, Sergei. Um, who takes a somewhat different approach, although he's had a, a different, I mean, he's had a similar past, although not exactly similar. Could you talk about him a little bit? Well, I was sort of try to have people in the novel who might have different experiences in life, whose unjustness, as it were, of their position in life um, was more... It's difficult to say, but it's like you can have somebody who is of affluent aristocratic background, and then bad things happen, and the person sort of tumbles down, and everybody might feel sorry for them. But this would be happening in a society which 90% of people are serfs to begin with, mm -hmm. um, who also 
might feel that their initial positions was unjust and nobody worries that they're staying exactly where they where they uh, started with it. So here I had a friend of his from a different social background and I was trying to develop the themes that they might look very differently at this issue of bringing justice. They might have a much more sort of gut reaction to it without worrying too much that you are now maybe committing injustices while you're seeking justice. Um, so that, I think, is why um, I thought it would be good to bring a slightly different perspective to that Nicholas might have, because of light stories of different people might bring a different approaches to what is the right thing to do. Oh, I think it's very effective. I mean, there is a theory in... Um that I've read in writing books that one of the ways to think about a story is that it's the mind's way of exploring alternative approaches. So often what happens is that there's a general concern in the story, which in this case is the restoration of justice. And then different characters take a different approach to it. Some of them want it, some of them want it in one way, some of them want it in a different way, some of them don't want it, obviously, if they're the people who've been committing the injustices in the first place. And so on. So I think it's very effective to see that difference. Um, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about Sergei himself? Where he, what is the nature of his injustices that he's trying to seek? Well, he's he is not actually seeking vengeance with Nicholas, but the plan is that he will one day Nicholas will help him achieve justice. Well, I think that this is. Um I thought about somebody whose life, Nicholas's life, he ends up being in a, in a military school um, where, because of his origins, he is often despised or looked down um, by, by people obsessed about class. And I thought that this would be a place where somebody else would, might find himself also, and for different reasons, but sort of in a similar situation. And I thought of a story of a sort of a military um, orphan, of somebody whose father was in the military, perhaps heroically died, and of course this, we had a, the novel takes place in the 1820s, but 1812 was a very bloody year for anybody in the Russian army, um, who then ends up being supported and sent to a military school where he again might be despised because his father was not a nobleman, but a, an NCO, heroically dead in the Battle of Brodino. But they come together, and what partly is the story of, of um, injustice inflicted on Sergei, who becomes a scapegoat for somebody of a much social position who commits horrible crime and a guilty party has to be found and this person who is a nobody then becomes a natural suspect and is guilty although I, I sort of fudge it he's not guilty but enough shadow is drawn over him for him to be forced to leave and then He's trying to make a living in various ways, and then he ends up working as a scribble in a lawyer's office in St. Petersburg, where eventually he reestablishes contact with Nicholas. So it's a very different life story, and then together they have this background of bad things having been done to them. And 
and good fortune smiles on Nicholas, it's natural that they would both think of, well, maybe it happened for a reason, and maybe that reason is to try to seek justice. So Sergei is scapegoated, basically. He's he's set up, right? Set up, blamed for something he hasn't actually done because it's convenient. Yeah, it's somebody who is a rich person who is allowed to get away with doing evil things. Which and in a sense, Nicholas is also scapegoated because the real enemy, to the extent there is an enemy of the stepmother, is the first wife. It's not really right. the boy who is left. Yes, but. If you think of it from her point of view, his presence around was 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 sort of unwanted, and of course, by pushing him away, she sort of precluded him getting any part of the estate. Or so there may have been monetary monetary motives to why Nicholas's stepmother uh, wanted him out. Um, yeah, I suppose she was expecting at some point she would yeah. have children of her own, which she doesn't, in fact. Is that right? Yeah. That's what yeah. I remember yeah. that she doesn't, yeah. Um, but of course, she but wouldn't that know that. It's part of a sort of criminal plot that develops later on. Right. I wasn't going to go into that unless you chose to raise it. <laughs> You're welcome to do so, but I don't want to give away things that you may want to keep secret. Um, there is also a young lady in the story um, yeah. who has, in a sense, her own response to justice and the site, the search for justice, excuse me. Would you yes. like to say a few words about her? I, it's, that's another sort of a thing that was a surprise for me um, in the process of writing. I had a, what I thought was a sort of a clear plan in my mind about how the book would, what would be the sort of the structure of the book. And I made it like sort of chapter by chapter and I scribbled down what I imagined things that would happen in the book. And and I was sort of, you know, writing along and pretty much according to the plan. And then a big surprise happened to me that you could like sort of be surprised. And then like like a character who you didn't think would be of any importance or sudden sort of asserts their importance. And they come and sort of march into your mind as a writer and say, well, here I am, and I have these things that I want to say. And this is sort of what happened to me with the young lady who, um, I'll just say that her background is she's sort of part of a family that is very much in opposed to Nicholas, and she becomes his ally. Um, and, um, well, there's story develops from there, but that part is sort of something that came to me as a surprise. Yes, characters do surprise you, actually. Um, all the time, they surprise me. Uh, so that's interesting, because I wouldn't have guessed that, that she had not been part of your original plan. She fits in very well with the overall story, and she... Um, Besides representing a third approach to the issue of justice, she also uh, provides the perfect ending um, in the way that she handles it and introduces it, I thought. I mean, I, I was very glad to see her appear because she has a very different approach, a very different personality from Nicholas. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
One of the things that um, your publicist, Adam Robinson, mentioned to me in one of his emails was that part of one of the things that you were trying to do in this novel was to convey a view of the Russian economy in this period and how it worked. And I wasn't quite sure what he meant by that because I didn't really see that. I mean, it looked to me like a, a typical Russian estate of the period. But I, does that ring any bells with you? Were you? Does that have to do with your past in finance? Was there something that you were trying to say specifically about the period? Well, I, I put in a couple of... Um, couple of uh, in a couple of instances, um, some uh, Russian economy was very stable at the moment, at that time. Um, not much was changing, and yet uh, on the surface there were things that were changing. And this obviously in a, in in the provinces, uh, well, all of the economy there was basically agricultural and was based on estates that were based in serfdom. And yet, even within that, there was, and I tried to have Nicholas at one point where he's still incognito and we don't know who he actually would end up being. He walks along a road and sort of gets rides from peasants on their horse carriages uh, as he goes along. And they talk about the masters and the, and the serfs. And they also talk about how some landowners um, are, are changing from requiring serfs working certain number of days on the estates of the master to serfs basically paying a, sort of like a, this is called a quit rent, um, a brock in Russian, for a, because there are serfs. So in one way, they provide days of labor under the direction of the landowner. And the other, they work on their own fields, they sell their products, and they pay tax to the landowner then for the right to use because all the land belongs to the landowner. Um, and those two things were, were basically in parallel. Um, one was sort of looking from our point of view um, more advanced, which is the one based on cash economy, the other one based on just provision of labor, um, was more backward, back, backward when in uh, Evgeny Onegin, when Evgeny travels back to his estates and he decides he's now going to be managing the estate in the new ways, one of the ways he changes um, of labor to cash payment. And Pushkin writes about how all the neighbors of Onegin think he's uh, an eccentric guy, because this is one of the things that to them is a very eccentric thing to do. But mm -hmm. these things were happening in the economy then, and I was sort of interested how it might look from peasant. Would, I suspected that to a peasant at the time, it would look like either thing, either way would be a way of screwing him, that, that they wouldn't necessarily see the one was much better than the other, because that this proportionality of, of, of power between the servant and the master would be in both cases, would be very, very large, and they—I I didn't imagine that the peasants themselves would have a very clear preference. What they wanted would be to adjust an on landowner rather than a particular system of how their obligations would be discharged. 
I suspect you're right about that. And by that time, also, they had a long history of landowners doing things that were not to the peasants' advantage, and therefore they tended to be, I think, extremely suspicious. Um, which brings us, in a sense, back to Tolstoy, because this is one of the things he did on his own estate, not the shift from, from labor obligations to quit rent, but he wanted to improve the peasants' lives in his own way. I mean, he wanted to give them an education. He wanted to teach them crafts, teach them better farming methods and all of this kind of thing. But um, it doesn't... What I remember is that he met with a great deal of resistance from the peasants because they just assumed that this was some new, previously unsuspected way of making their lives more difficult and his easier. That is absolutely true. The other element I was trying to sort of touch a little bit, and it's also something that the literature will become uh, important, was this idea that the nobleman who gets a state owner, nobleman of the period, who gets in financial trouble, would have very limited options. One of them would be to borrow money from financiers. and that he sort of with a very established place in the Russian society of the time would find it very different having to deal with people who are concerned with selling bills of exchange because that's how you would find on somebody's having bad debts. Um, and this, this two cultures, this one of nobility and honor and strict hierarchy and the other one of, of commercial capitalism, um, the clash would be very, very, very painful. I mean, this is at the end of the century. uh, uh, Cherry Orchard is basically about that. Um, And I sort of had a little bit of of talking about how painful it would be for a nobleman to have to go to somebody who might or might not lend him the money. and somebody who is not himself a noble man at all, but who has cash. And that sort of is, a, is something that would be a, a big culture shock. And that's one of the ways that Nicholas exerts his re- his revenge, isn't it? I mean, it, I can yeah. tell you this yeah. much because it comes out fairly early in the, the story yeah. that there's a particular nobleman in the area who is associated with Nicholas's stepmother and Nicholas even before we really know what he wants to do we know that he is actively buying up the debts of this nobleman with the intention of ruining him being able to confront him about the fact that he's now the real owner of his enemy's estate mm-hmm. yeah I'm sure that was <laughs> <laughs> tremendously satisfying thing for Nicholas to do. Tremendous... But this sort of requires that they be the system of financial obligations um, in place. Um, and it's sort of, once you, the idea is also that once you run into debts and you cannot sort of pay them off, uh, your options are becoming very, very difficult. Well, Which is something that countries are finding out <laughs> Like the country of Greece is right now finding out um, you have debts that you cannot pay, then then it's not pleasant sitting across the table from people who might or might not be willing to lend you money. 
Yes, as an international debt negotiator, I'm sure you've seen that. That was something I, I, I saw. I worked at these tables, and, and I often felt like it really teaches you <laughs> not to not to not to do things. Not not well. One can of course borrow, but I mean, just that not being able to pay back your debt is a very painful situation. Now, I don't know as much about the early 19th century. My period is a bit earlier, 16th century. But certainly in the 16th century, there were lots of nobles who were, in effect, land-rich and cash-poor. And my impression is that that was also true in the early 19th century. Is that right? That is, that is correct. That is correct. And I, I tried to sort of touch upon it. This is one of the functions of the notary public in the town would be sort of to manage the, the cash but there were always big expenditures that, you know, getting your son equipped to, to join the military service was a very big expenditure. Um, weddings, I mean, uh, shocks like having a building be burned and then having to deal with that. Uh, uh, stories, when you read stories of the period, uh, this need for cash for families who have land and who have serves, um is 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 often very great, and of course, underlying all of it is the realization they they sell the land um, and the serfs that they're basically nobodies. They don't have a profession and they don't have land. That that sort of is the end of them as a, as a, as people of respect um, of standing in that society. Right. Right. They have. They have the land and they have the serfs, but they can't really sell those things. They... Yeah, no, no, I, I'm saying yes. That's why that for people, as, as you said from earlier times, that well, we would look at people with large land holdings and having scores of serfs working for them as being quote-unquote rich. But in terms of cash, they were often quite constrained. Um, we're going to shift now into the, the last part of the interview, um, and I thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. Um, I remember reading that you had also done poetry and short stories. That, that's correct. <laughs> How does that relate? Is that easier for you to write than, than novels or more difficult? I, I started with that. I started writing poetry, um, and I... I often had to travel to places which were really sort of far away with not much there. Um, and in this sort of far away rudimentary hotel places. And, and, and then I, I don't know, maybe feeling lonely, feeling dislocating, feeling sort of distance from everything. Um, I would write what turned out into poems and of course I put them aside and then look at them for years and then I look at them afterwards and some of them still seem worthy of present <laughs> otherwise other ones I just threw away um, so yes yes I initially started doing that I still do poetry now in addition to other writing are you working on another novel well I this is sort of very much in a, a stage of sort of 
thinking, but not even sort of a concrete thinking. But I think I would like to continue the story of Nicholas and Tatiana. And I think also that I would like to um, write more uh, about the political events that would happen in Russia, how they might affect the life of people in the countryside. And the particular event that I am considering sort of have it be happening and then sort of seeing how it would reverberate um, um, for our people here um, in, in, in this province of Ryazan was the Decemberist uprising, which is, I think, I mean, December, and the way it sort of changed the life and affected the life of quite a lot of people, and some of them might be some way related to the protagonist of my book. And this, I think, I think that this is a story that would be interesting, uh, and perhaps even I would be able to write about it. But that sort of is a is a is a very very rudimentary thinking that I have right now about it. I could certainly see Sergei as a Decemberist. <laughs> well, <laughs> he he would be there, but he, I mean, it's one of the tensions in that particular episode of Russian history is between the starry-eyed nobles who talked about things and doing things in a very impractical way, and then going out and trying to do it and be faced with the utter failure. So if I think about it in Sergei, I see Sergei as being on the sidelines telling people, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Um, and of course, he, since he would be the one most likely traveling between St. Petersburg and, and Ryazan, he would be also in a situation sort of connecting the events in the capital to what might be happening in the provinces. So that's not aristocratic enough either to be most of the Decemberists were fairly high ranking. Right. right. There were some who were not, but also that they um, in, a, in a events that happened then on the Senate Square in, in St. Petersburg were people from many social classes. And that would be sort of I, I'm trying to read the eyewitness reports and police reports about what happened then and the aftermath of it. And it's a fascinating story. And I want to sort of have that happen and perhaps have Sergei witness it. And then perhaps some of the um, events that happen afterwards. Um, the, the absolutely fascinating part of, of, of that story is, is, is what happened afterwards, after the uprising, and the role of women who followed their husbands Siberia, often at the incredible personal cost. And that is the aspect that I think I would like to develop in my book. This was a situation where the leaders of the uprising, well, the, the five major, major leaders were, were hanged, but the people below were exiled. And they were seen as sort of not necessarily in a very good light by many many others who were perhaps not very happy with developments in Russia, but certainly not ready to be part of an armed rebellion against a legitimate ruler, which Nicholas, Tsar Nicholas, who replaced Alexander, was in their eyes. 
And their exile to Siberia was nothing special. What happened, what was special, is that their wives decided to follow them. And it is the sacrifice of the wives that then, over a period of, of very long, because Tsar Nicholas was not, I mean, yet to die many, many years later for, for its empress to be allowed to come back, um, is the wives that changed the perception of how Russian society, educated Russian society, look at the Decembers. And this is something I, I think I want to develop in a follow-up story to, to my book. Well, we wish you all luck, and we hope that we'll, we'll get to interview you again after the second book comes out. Um, so thank you so much for talking to us today. Great pleasure for me. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, host of New Books in Historical Fiction, and today I've been talking with Julian Berengout, author of The Estate of Wormwood and Honey. You can follow Julian's blog at www.wormwood-and-honey.com. And if you would like to know more about me and my novels, The Not Exactly Scarlet Pimpernel and The Golden Lynx, stay tuned. We will be conducting an introductory interview soon. In the meantime, you can find information at www.cplesley.com. I hope you will subscribe to our podcasts at newbooksinhistoricalfiction.com. That's one word, New Books in Historical Fiction. We expect to start with one interview a month and move up to every other week if there seems to be sufficient interest. Goodbye for now. I'll be talking to another author soon.